Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green. We'll be joined shortly by Brittany Spanos. And we thought that today we would talk about reunions. A lot of reunions going on. Rage Against the Machine is getting back together. My Chemical Romance is getting back together. The Black Crows in some form are getting back together. It's interesting to me for a lot of reasons. One thing is that rock's present basically doesn't exist. But there's so much of Rock's past. Right. And we live in a world that is not producing a lot of big new rock bands. But there's such a hunger that's for live rock music. And that's especially true at the festival level. So the money that you get offered if you're a former rock band to reform, every year you're gone, it gets higher and higher and higher and even harder to say no to. And you were saying that there's especially in Europe, there's all these festivals, the Download Festival, et cetera, et cetera, that they're built around rock. For better or worse, they can't book Drake as a headliner. It wouldn't work. Right. But they can't also have Metallica every single year, which is the current situation. Yeah, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a manager of some big rock acts that talks a lot to these European festival bookers, and they were telling him there's this desperate hunger for fresh bands, and there's just very few of them, that every summer it's the same groups that play these things and what's not widely known in this country is how many big european festivals that there are they're all over norway and all those countries they have these monster monster festivals the gershlagen festival (laughs) and there's a reason that metallica they play europe now it is every single summer it's these same festivals but they want new bands and for a group like rage there's so much money to be made playing these festivals (laughs) i mean listen i think i'm sure they want to do some business i'm sure also that they cannot resist the symbolism of 2020 yeah it's a very good excuse to go on tour <laughs> but if you're the cynicism well, wow if you're zach de la roca you haven't had a, much income in 10 years now that his solo album is just not happening it's ridiculous that they keep even talking about it. it's been like 20 years now i'm sure he made a fortune on that last rage tour but that was 10 years ago he's 50 in a few months And I'm sure that even if you're Zach De La Roca, that the lure of making like $20 million or even much more if they tour a lot, he just can't resist it. On the other hand, what they've announced is Coachella. Yeah. And then some interestingly located dates, right? Yeah. There's one Phoenix date and then I believe two Texas dates, I have to check on that, that are near the border or at least somewhat near the border. And what's happening on those dates is extremely unclear. The band hasn't commented on this yet, but it's all a build-up to Coachella, where they're going to play both weekends. And I last saw them at Coachella in, I guess, 2007? Yeah, the band broke up in 2000. Then there was the Audio Slave years. And then between 07 and 2011, they toured a lot with zero new songs. And in 2011, they just vanished again. And following the story is very hard because Zach never does interviews. And the rest of the guys, they don't like talking about Zach or the band. So it's just always hard to follow what's happening. But then Prophets of Rage were Rage. It was minus Zach and plus Be Real and Chuck D. And of course, Tom Morello has done a whole bunch of stuff. He became a singer-songwriter, launched the Night Watchman project, went from acoustic stuff to then back to electric, he, and he toured as a member of the E Street Band. Yeah, and throughout all of that, he does constant interviews. I've talked to him a lot. I'm sure you have. He loves talking to the press. 
But there's one word that you say to him where he clamps up, and that's Zach. He just doesn't like talking about it because it's a very fragile thing. It's interesting, again, to have taking away from your speculations about mm-hmm. their desire to make millions of dollars, which yes. will no doubt be a side effect of this reunion. Mm-hmm. Again, having Rage Against the Machine back now as 2020 approaches, but not only that, but as the mainstream of politics gets closer and closer to the Rage Against the Machine agenda, let's face it. It's nuts. That this is a group that only existed in the Bill Clinton years. And as soon as Bush won, they're gone. And they don't come back until the Obama years. So they're only around in sort of more peaceful times, which is sort of just a huge irony of them. So this is finally a chance to go out and just wreak havoc in the time of real shit going down. What do you make of the timing of this, Brittany Spanos, who has now joined us? Yeah, I think that this is such perfect timing for that. I think there's also been a lot of revisitation of their music from fans, especially people who may not have seen them live ever, may not have ever kind of weren't really fans at sort of peak rage periods. But I think this is a really great time, like you mentioned, sort of the matching of a lot of leftism and kind of increasingly progressive politics for a younger generation with the band themselves. Yeah. I mean, I've been to 10 million concerts in my life. I've never seen a crowd one-tenth as fired up Mm -hmm. as Rage at Rock the Bells in 07. It was the entire Reynolds Island field was a mosh pit of just absolute insanity. Mm -hmm. What they do to a audience is, I think there's no precedent in the history of live music besides like Woodstock corn or something for crowds that get that fired up. Yeah. The one time I've ever had to leave a mosh pit was Rage Against the Machine at Lollapalooza in 2008. It was the most insane thing I'd ever seen there. So at Coachella in 2007, it was their first gig in a bunch of years. In seven years. In seven years. I had covered the breakup of Rage Against the Machine at MTV News and got kind of Michael Moore was my source on it uh, (laughs) because he had become a buddy of the band. But there they were back. They hadn't lost a step, and they were quite inflammatory, too, from the stage. Zach DeLaRocca said that, you know, every U.S. president should have been hung for war crimes. As far as rhetoric, they had not lost a step. They also still have yet to come up with a new song. The members, minus Zach, in addition to Audio Slave and everything else, did record this, I actually think, underrated Prophets of Rage album with Be Real and Chuck D., And they all sat right here in the same studio. We're recording this and talked about that album and it's worth checking out. And we were saying it's crazy that like basically, you know, most of the band can be out touring, playing Rage songs with two legendary rappers. And it still generates, I would say, perhaps 5% of the attention a Rage tour would generate. 5%. They put amphitheaters, they played festivals. It wasn't nothing, but... If you take a band and you remove the lead singer, it just gets pretty tricky. It's fascinating also because, you know, I was saying that chronologically, as far as like where the band is and when they were founded, they're basically in their steel wheels phase. Yeah. I mean, at the last reunion, Zach was 37. He turns 50 in a few months. I mean, it's just not the kind of music you think is being made by people in their 50s. And again, we're changing that all the time, but it is interesting when bands whose music is a lot more aggressive and extreme have to find ways of doing it as a, you know, to be a 50 year old man screaming, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me is like a different thing, you know? Right, right. I was just picturing people saying back, okay, boomer. But I mean, (laughs) yeah, but I I was watching YouTube shows and their 2010 London show was even better than their 90s shows. I mean, that was one of the best reunions I've ever seen. 
The truth is, I expect it will be as fiery as ever. And I think it's been proven that people can play this kind of music. It's just, it's just we have to constantly adjust our ideas of it. That's what I'm talking about with the Steel Wheels thing. Because the, the Steel Wheels era of the Rolling Stones, people were like, oh my God, they're so old. Right. Like, how can people possibly play rock and roll at this stage in their lives? And then the other comparison that's really strange is, you know, the Stones never broke up. The Stones kept recording albums. And we have bands like Rage who basically have their careers in a weird suspended animation. Right. They keep unfreezing themselves. Yeah, which <laughs> every I few years. imagine is a reason Zach has always been very ambivalent about it. Because I think that they don't want to become like the Steve Miller band, where it's just <laughs> a frozen moment in time. You just do it forever as you get older and fatter and grayer. I think that's so against the spirit of what Rage was. Those guys are all lean as hell. There's I a lot mean, of CrossFit going on in the region. <laughs> I don't mean they're. I don't mean yeah. they're getting fat. They are extremely good for their age. I'm just saying that. I think that Zach's worst nightmare probably in the 90s was that we'll stop making all new music and just every 10 years we will reform to make money. I mean, it's just goes against like the ethos of the band in so many ways. What we don't know is maybe they have new music. There's no way. I just can't <laughs> imagine it. Like Zach has not been able to produce a solo record, which he's been talking about, as I said, for 20 years. He's clearly just not making music in any way, shape, or form. We were talking about the fact that their fan base is sometimes weirdly seems at odds with their message. I've seen them many times over the years. I saw them at a free Mumia concert in, in, in like circa 99-2000. You know, I last saw them at Coachella, and there were rumors of a riot, actually, and there were kind of a scary line of cops, the kind of line of cops that hadn't in Reich that hadn't seen at a concert since Woodstock 99. But it's like unclear what would have been the impetus for the riot because I didn't get a lot of sense of politics in that crowd. And of course, there was no riot. Everyone just kind of like trudged off. But, <laughs> yeah. but it's like a good example is, you know, <laughs> this is insane, but Tom Morello will post on Instagram or something like, fuck Trump, you know, which for him is like the most mild thing he could say. And you'll see comments be like, that's it, I don't like your music anymore. You'd be like, <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how could that... Had you listened to yeah, it in the first yeah, place? Like, <laughs> how, can you make any sense of that kind of disconnect? I mean, again, this is why it's such a great time because it's they exist in those moments of peace where it's sort of people may have been a little bit more apathetic to things that were happening beyond that. But and the fans that were drawn to them just kind of were more drawn to the anger than the actual messages. But right now, the anger that a lot of people have matches the message that Rage Against the Machine has been touting for decades now. And I think there's going to be a shift in not only the audiences at these concerts, it's probably going to be a mixture of the people who are nostalgic for the sort of like anger that they could feel from the band, but also people who need that kind of message right now and need that sort of incitement and anger against what's happening in the country, in the world at yeah. large. I mean, yeah. it, it has to be pointed out that Tom Morello, who was always kind of the band spokesperson, would talk about not believing in capitalism and essentially, mm -hmm. I mean, he would call himself a communist. And it was basically treated as like this insane novelty at the time in the 90s because, you know, who, who would not believe in capitalism at the, during the roaring Clinton mm -hmm. years? And now we've taken it all the way to, you know, a couple decades later where there's a major democratic... <laughs> candidate for president who denounces capitalism. Mm -hmm. So right. it's been quite a journey. Yeah, but Tom Morello, he also said that the audio slave that they broke up because they couldn't agree on the best way to like share the money. I mean, this was... <laughs> 
It's always been a bit watered down, but I want to say there's something about the Bulls on Parade riff that when it hits like the brain of a shirtless white guy in his early 20s <laughs> that he goes completely insane. <laughs> like, it like flips some switch in his brain where the shirt just flies off. It's just like, ah! It's like, it's like magic. Yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad time. Yeah, they, there's no sound that's ever been made that can trigger more shirtless white male, just like riotous energy than this. <laughs> right. Like, think like Bernie, mosh like Beavis. Is yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, at the same time, listen, like, you know, killing in the name, some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Is And so it's this weird line between, yeah, the music is so visceral. And, yeah. you know, I, the other, the internet meme is like, in brackets, punches drywall. Yeah. Well, it's a throwback to, I think, of, they played Woodstock, you know, and they were there, Brian. It was this weird period of just... Rage for no real reason, <laughs> <laughs> and I well, think except like, they had a reason. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I don't think there's any music right now that is nearly as energized and angry as Rage Against the Machine. I mean, there's really like not a lot of bands that have matched that, and I think right. there is sort of this moment of a lack of protest music that matches the exact level of anger that everyone feels constantly, and like a constant sort of reading everything that's happening and like constantly consuming all of that but not having the catharsis of expressing it through going through a show like a Rage Against the Machine show so I, I do think it's going to be a much different energy yeah, than like and the shirts have been on for a decade and their sad legacy is they didn't inspire bands to get political mm-hmm. they inspired Limp Bizkit true which they have jokingly and not jokingly apologized four million times. They did. It's, it's yeah. sort of you're not responsible for where your influence takes people, unfortunately. Right. And then Limp Bizkit, a great band, though. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> l- l- I listen, don't agree. Limp, Limp Bizkit had their moments. I mean, to be fair, Limp Bizkit had their moments, but they didn't just inspire Limp Bizkit. They also inspired, you know, Crazy Town and 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 all <laughs> no, the sort great of band. Okay, now, now you're just talking insanity. Although I, I will say someone, I've been looking into something about Crazy Town that I'm not sure is true. Someone said that they got this great jazz drummer who was like 80 years old to be the drummer of Crazy Town. I love the, the jazz turns of all of the yeah, bands because yeah. Fred Durst has his jazz night in LA. Right. No, yeah. no this is a very the logical conclusion. This is, at the time. this is that their drummer quit and they needed a drummer and this guy who played on like, you know, Charlie Parker records was like, <laughs> they just like, because if you just have a goatee and like a knit cap, the look of the no, era, no. you could be 30, you could be 80, yeah. who knows? So I hope that's true. But anyways, yes, Rage inspired that magnificent thing, but it's a crazy thing. But I wanted to get back to Bernie's point about the lack of aggression in music, because I think that Stephen Hyden wrote a, a really interesting piece about that recently in Uprox, I think, about just pointing out that even the angriest music of this decade has been kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. And the music that kids love is whispery. I mean, look, Billie Eilish, she's awesome. And there's a lot of rage in the undercurrents of her music, but it's all kind of expressed in a very soft fashion mm-hmm. musically. Yeah, I think it's a, been a difference of explicit versus implicit expression of anger and of protesting sort of various policies and various, you know, everything that's happening but i think it's through just sort of expressing identity expressing personal stories that's sort of been the shift in how it's happened but i think there hasn't been a lot of people to kind of hit you over the head with that sort of and so this could be their moment 
but they need one new song. I think that's all it takes, a single new Rage song. They we may s- not. They may not need a new song. It may just be that their catalog has caught up with the times in a way that's never happened before. Yeah, and maybe put them the on the road song- with Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <And> then, <laughs> I mean, it, it's possible that that whole idea of the new song might be... It's very, very different, but look at Billy Joel. I mean, it, it's like <laughs> very, very different. It's the first time someone has Yeah, no, like but... They have so many things in common. he has like 12 albums, and they have three. It's three albums. Mm-hmm. They have so many things in common. I'm trying to think of things they have in common. They're both... Yeah, they're, like, they're both good human luck. Ba- yeah. They both played Madison Square Garden. Yeah, there's, there's drums in both kinds of music. There's a bald guy. Yeah. Now, uh, I know that yeah. fans want the old songs... That's true for all bands, but... But in all seriousness, if your music just needs to be brought to life to mm-hmm. speak perfectly to the moment, it would be nice to have a new song, but maybe you don't need it. And I, I would I would like an update on the Zach De La Roca solo album that's been in the works for longer than Chinese Democracy was, but that's another thing. He song. did that one I mean, EP. Or... I think also sometimes new songs ruin it, <laughs> especially if the song is really bad. Well, that's kind of what I was... <laughs> that's what my Billy Joel thing kind of meant. Yeah, yeah like yeah. I think like... If they release one new song and it's super corny, which was, I think, like, the problem with Prophets of Rage sometimes was that they're kind of, like, verging on corny sometimes. But, like, I think that that could sort of make it a little bit of a dud. Whereas people, I mean, a lot of, again, like, it's one of those rare instances where a reunion can lead to majority new fans right yes cut to like i just pictured zach with a piece of paper and a pencil and crossing out all these rhymes for trump like (laughs) like, uh, trump's too obvious yeah you know one point that i thought of is just it's kind of fascinating is tom morello's guitar style and he remains one of the greatest guitar players of all time and one of the final guitar heroes that rock culture produced like jack white and then it kind of it started to really dip off after there but his guitar style part of it is based around recreating the sounds of hip-hop on his guitar but that's not what hip-hop sounds like anymore so it's kind of interesting it's almost like he's just creating tom morello sounds that sound like dj scratching that isn't part of any current music it's an interesting decontextualized thing we were talking in the break like what if he tried to create the sounds of current hip-hop on his guitar? You know, like trap hi-hats? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't quite know how he'd do it. But next time I talk to Tom Morello, I'm definitely asking him this question. <laughs> it's just the contextlessness of it is fascinating. It made more sense, frankly, with Chuck D and Be Real up there because yeah. those guys are links to that era of hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Now it's just it's just rage. It's just what rage sounds like. That's more rage than what than what hip-hop sounds like. It's, it's just a weird... Am I wrong? Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. It's a crazy thing. And it's still so weird that he joined the street band. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It does now exist that there's a fantastic version of the ghost of Tom Joad with Tom Morello on it doing all that rage stuff yeah. on a Bruce Springsteen song, which, of course... You know, came from them covering Ghost of Tom Joad all those years ago, right. which is kind of how the, this all but came But in, in a very different arrangement, though. Yes, of course. But, yeah. like, you know, he took the guitar stuff. Yes, a very different arrangement. Then my favorite thing is Nickelback. Then <laughs> w- just end there. Yeah, no, yeah. just think about it. My favorite thing is Nickelback. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. Yes, they are, of course, my, my very favorite thing that ever existed, Nickelback. <laughs> there is a YouTube clip of them covering the Ghost of Tom Joad. But they're like, Here's a song by one of my favorite bands, 
Rage Against the Machine, and then they proceed to cover Rage's cover oh of the God. Ghost of Tom Jones with no knowledge that it was ever anyone's songs, or indeed that there was a, a version that had a melody that he could have sung. Right, yeah. <laughs> that, that would have made a lot more sense. Wow. But anyway, it's just the weirdness of the thing. Zach DeRocca has not, on the other hand, ever joined the Eastry Band. No, I think that would be unlikely. <laughs> But the other guys have, you know, kept in shape. They've been playing. And I think what's cool, actually, is it's not one of those reunions where they have to pull guys out of, like, their day jobs. These guys have been playing and playing and playing. So they're kind of, like, ready to go. In yeah. fact, they're fully rehearsed. They've been right. playing the they're rage playing songs together. on the Pops and, of Rage songs. And, yeah. like, their drummer Brad played on the last Black Sabbath record. You know, he's fantastic. These are great players. Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, we were joking around, but this is an, like an incredibly powerful band. Right. And one of the most important bands of all time. And I think hopefully beyond, you know, it's not just a cash-in. It's, again, like reclaiming their place sort of in, in rock history. I think it's largely a cash-in. Well, that's, you know, your cynicism is noted. They will prove it. <laughs> if they do largely European festivals, it's just a cash-in. Band capitalism, except for Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> arm the homeless as his guitar said but you know make sure the check is clear yeah. yes. yep. i mean listen it's the contradictions are all built into the thing i don't know what to well, tell you at the very beginning they signed to a major label but it, that major label gave them access to lots of money yeah lots of money but also to put genuinely radical videos Right in the middle of the MTV mainstream. True, true, so true. So it, it's like, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, there's always been contradictions. They're smart enough to know the contradictions. Of course. We'll see what happens. Yes, I think if it's all European festivals, I think they're missing a chance to really reconstitute their message, but I don't think that's what we're looking at. Besides new music, another thing they could do would be interviews, because again, that's not Zach. They won't. Has, Zach De La Roca hasn't spoken in many, many, many years. Yeah. I'd love to hear his thoughts on... Trump and everything. everything. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be great. I bet they do no press the entire time. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. So another band that is reuniting. Let's do the Black Crows briefly before we get to My Chemical Romance because we have a lot to say about My Chemical Romance. Okay. I have an upcoming episode I will reveal with Steve Gorman, the former drummer of the Black Crows, who wrote this incredible tell-all book about the band, one of the funniest rock books ever written. So, And that's one reason I don't want to dwell too much on yeah. the Crows. But I'll where say is this. their place in all these things? I'll right say now? this. Yeah. In the past two years, I spoke extensively to both Rich Robinson and to Chris Robinson. And they both emphatically said that they will never reunite, that they hate the other brother. It would just be for money. I will not do that. I will not do that. I will not do that. It would just be for money. And so like, now it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, blood is thicker than water. I don't know. Well, what happened was they both formed... Side projects. Yeah, yeah. which were Black Crow's tribute bands that just did Black Crow's songs and they're playing like clubs. It was so stupid. It was like one plus one is like 50. So, <laughs> I mean, according to uh, Steve's book, basically Chris Robinson demanded 75% of the band's proceeds, which is why they broke up. Mm -hmm. So I imagine he's dialed that demand back down. <laughs> Plus, Steve Gorman was a full member of the band. The drummer used to be like a, you know, he wasn't just a hired hand, but now he's out. It's now just split between the two of them, which might be easier to to handle. It was hard to it handle. It was hard before. to handle. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. But, but I mean, I don't know what kind of venues they can play even as the Black Crows. I think they can play amphitheaters. Mm -hmm. They have a big following, and there's that very sounds about right. That sounds about right. And there's very few '90s groups where the principal members and the singers are, 
is still there. They will See, kill so you're saying on the, the this, summer circuit. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I believe there's only going to be one principal. No, no, I mean, one principal member and the singer, two But two they're people. like Oasis or the Kinks, where the other members, they always changed out. And it was the brothers were all that mattered to the Thimbles You're fans. saying if Oasis reunited with that bonehead or whatever, that people it would... It was fine. <laughs> and bonehead left years before they broke up. You're saying that people would pay for an Oasis reunion without bonehead? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think they would. That what matters to most fans is just the principles I'd be the there brothers. with my where's bonehead sign. But bonehead left in like 97 or something and no one gave a shit. I beg to differ. <laughs> You're a big bonehead fan. Your point is taken. I do think that Steve Gorman was extremely key to the. the Steve's a great drummer. And I don't think that one person is going to stay home because Steve Gorman's not there. I mean, if Guns N' Roses can do another drum transplant and it still worked out for them, yes, it, it's a tough thing. It even it's the same way. Like, look, the Stones probably could have toured for many years without Charlie, but they never would have sounded the same. Of so I think that's more what I mean. Mm-hmm. But. The Crows really could be the new Steve Miller. Like, they really could. They could do amphitheaters for until the, the end of time. Yeah, but yeah. they hate each other. I mean, it's the most visceral hate I've almost ever felt in a band. Maybe they have reconciled. I mean, I, just like maybe Rage Against the Machine have recorded music, maybe the Robinson brothers do not despise each other anymore. I think that the lure of money was just stronger than the lure <laughs> of the hate. I mean, Gorman's book, and again, there'll be a whole episode of us talking about it, just exposes these are guys who, if you believe his book, are pretty troubled. But you talk to them on the phone, they're so damn funny and charming. Well, Chris, is Rich charming? Yes, I <laughs> talked to Rich, he was super charming. So, you know, everyone has their good sides and bad sides. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Crows are interesting in the sense that their first two albums are actually quite good. I and mean, their second album really, really holds up, Southern Harmony. And then one of the things you learn from the book is why nothing after that is so good. And, and then that's basically like things went wildly wrong after their second album. So while they're not like Rage, they're not like one of these bands who were only together really, really briefly, you know, barely made any albums. It's kind of like they, you know, they made two albums that a lot of people care about. And right, then, but that's all you need. You tour forever off two albums. The other thing I'll say about the Black Crows is just that they do have this other thing, which is the jam fan base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a big factor in all this. Right. And part of what Rich got so mad at Chris at was Chris became obsessed by the Grateful Dead and, and he wanted the group to become a sort of, of like dead like band. Yeah, you're giving away parts of my interview now, but oh, yes. Sorry, but, sorry, but, sorry. That was, but what I was saying is like business wise, that provides a sort of undercurrent of support for them that would allow them to keep going and also a demand that would explain why they want to get back together, I assume, right? Yeah, and their solo shows, they just stopped selling a ton, so they were really forced to do this. Do you think anyone under 30 knows who the Black Crows are? <laughs> I know two songs. Yeah. And I don't Hard, which care. One, which ones? Hard to Handle and She Talks to Angels. Okay. Mm-hmm. You don't know Remedy? I absolutely do not <laughs> Rem- know what that is. Remedy. I Remedy didn't is even a good know one. They had <laughs> more than two albums. <laughs> Remedy it was the single from their second album, and it was noted for a video in which Chris didn't wear shoes. There's a rare sort of barefoot frontman <laughs> appearance on MTV, and some people found that a little unsettling. But yeah, Remedy's a good song. Yeah. We'll have to play more for Britney so she can hear that. If they play like Bonnaroo, they'll like do really well with the Bonnaroo crowd, you know, like they need to know their audience. 
that is definitely a barefoot frontman crowd. They, yeah. You're absolutely right. But yeah, they're definitely going to kill on like the summer amphitheater tours. Like they can do like what the Goo Goo Dolls and Matchbox 20 do, which is team up with another similar band and just keep touring every summer for decades. Wasn't there actually a Black Crow's Oasis tour? Didn't that actually happen that in was reality? The Brotherly Love Tour, Summer of 01, and with Space Hog there too. So it was three brother bands that all hated each other. It was a fantastic show. <laughs> I walked out. Who could the... forget the legendary brother rivalry in Space Hog? <laughs> yes. Data rivalry. Yeah. And I saw him in Blossom, and I was seated by both Kate Hudson and by Liv Tyler, who was married to the Space Hog guy at the time. <laughs> it was a weird night. Good story. Thank you. <laughs> so let's move on to the other reunion. And this is one I'm really psyched about. I know Brittany is really psyched about mm-hmm. uh, My Chemical Romance, a really great band of the 2000s. They were an amazing live band. I saw them for the first time in a pretty early gig for a tsunami benefit in a small club in New Jersey. I wasn't super familiar with them, and they absolutely, like, staggeringly blew me to the back of the club. It was a small venue for them even then. And Gerardway had miles of charisma and like this like insane manic energy. And then they they ended up channeling it into sort of one of the few great rock operas of the 2000s with Black Parade. And so they were a band with incredible amounts of promise. And then they actually disappeared for like four years and then recorded an album that I think is really underrated i don't know how you feel about their final album it's fine i haven't really returned to it that much (laughs) since it was released and so i have really no strong feeling in the way that like black parade i didn't immediately like as much Uh when it came out and then it was something that after a few years it started to grow on me i'm not okay i promise from the breakthrough album from three cheers for sweet revenge that song like could have been smells like teen spirit it it was such an anthem i don't know if we have that ready yet there were some like sort of older rock fans who couldn't crack the code of this band, but I, I didn't quite get why that was because to me it's so obvious that they were one of the great rock hopes of their era. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a very specific period of time that was going on. I mean, you had Free Cheers coming out around the same time that Fall Out Boys from Under the Cork Tree, Panic the Disco was breaking. Like, it was this very the emo pop punk apex that they were like meeting together and also kind of like glam and it was very theatrical and it was a very new time for a lot of people that was hitting home for a lot of really really young audiences and when they did black parade it really was a black flag in the ground proclaiming that here was the most ambitious of their generation of mm-hmm. bands, and probably in many ways the best, although I have a real soft spot for Fall Out Boy. Don't make me make that decision. But <laughs> they kind of became the classic rock band of emo at that point. Yeah. You know, drawing on Pink Floyd and Bowie, and Andy yeah. looked like right. he wanted to say anything. You know, he was disagreeing with me say, yeah. I think the problem they faced is they had very few adult fans. Most of their fans were probably between 12 and 17 mm-hmm. or something. And like five years pass and those kids, they get older and you don't replace them. And suddenly like their sales just plummet. Mm -hmm. I also think that 
one of the reasons it's a great time for them to get together is all those teens are adults now, obviously. Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing as the Jonas Brothers. Mm-hmm. They were tanking too because they didn't cross they no adult fans. Adult, yeah. But if you wait seven, eight years, like all of a sudden your fans are in their mid-20s and they are nostalgic for when they were like 14 mm-hmm. and you can be born again. So Danger Days, The True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, which was their final album, Again, like, I thought it was super fun. Right before it was released, they released their cover of Desolation Row, which was in the Zack Snyder (laughs) Watchmen movie, which just shows how long an era we're talking about. But, you know, and and that I should say that, you know, Gerard Way is kind of a genius. He is the only person ever to be the front man of an arena stadium level rock band and also become a top level comic book creator. Mm -hmm. His Umbrella Academy became a, a big Netflix series. Like, he is an impressive human being. And part of the whole thing was that he had a wife and kid and my impression is that actually it's not even an impression i know from my interviews with him at the time that after black parade they were getting very burned out from touring you saw them on uh, when was the tour you saw them yeah i was with blink 82 probably backstage in 2011 or something and it was a long shed tour they were both headlining and I, i saw him walking around the entire day just looking so bored and tired. Well, I talked to Mike Hem for a feature back in 2011, and I also did a little uh, video interview. We actually have the audio of that, and it kind of shows where they are. And there's a lot of optimism for the future of the band that was somewhat incorrect, but it turns out to be correct nine years later. Let's hear that. Uh, so first of all, you've now had a chance to play the new album a bunch on stage. How is it? What are you learning about it as you kind of bring it to life night after night? It's really the kind of record where you kind of need to put your money where your mouth is. Like, it's, if you made the record with the intention of, you know, trying to change something or trying to rebel against something, it's, it's, it's a fight. Then you're, you're, you know, so then I accepted that at a certain point. I was like, wow, this, this record kind of is a fight, you know, like, it is different, it is challenging, but the fans are extremely accepting of that. But that's definitely what I've learned just from being out there in the world and, like, the way people talk about rock and roll or ask you questions about it or say things like you know how do you feel about rock and roll not being as relevant and things like that so you you get you know you get questions is it but it's it's a lot of places that you go though so you start to realize that your record you're glad you made the record you did i guess you know and you mentioned that maybe you're thinking about recording sooner rather than later yeah and it was something you were talking about too where you feel like that's kind of in the air and i feel like it is i think it's been there for a long time and i think now it's more of a necessity of we all as artists need to figure out how that's possible because it's something we'd always wanted you know we never really want to like make a record tour in it for like two and a half years go away come back start the process over like we're musicians we like playing music we like writing music so just to survive as artists not financially we need to we need to figure that out do you have a sense of how the next few years of the band are going to play out do you have a, a master plan here well, one of the most interesting things we're talking about right now is potentially building a studio to move, importantly, I think, into that part of our lives. Like, it's time to be able to make music every day. Putting out more music is going to become more important for this band than, than touring all the time. You know? Well, it's like your house is sort of like an art studio. Right. So you want to be able to have the same freedom to make music that you have to make art all day. Right, and it's really weird because, like, as, well, I guess a lot of young rock bands they don't have that you actually don't have that freedom you're basically just faced with challenges every few years like this is your challenge you have three months to make the best record of Mm -hmm. your life good luck and like yeah you know it's it's actually yeah the process is ridiculous and then do it again a year later Yeah. yeah yeah 
And it's really, yeah, that's a crazy thing to, you cannot sustain that. Yeah. And I think that's why we burnt out, and I think that's why we scrapped a record, and I think, because we just couldn't do that anymore. You could you can't constantly, you know, you have to be like, yeah, you have to have freedom. You have to be an artist every single day of your life. And if you're not, if you're just performing, like, it's not good. <laughs> we had that cool sound at the end of that, uh, <laughs> of that interview. But it's really interesting to hear that. We were talking about that final record. The final record was like this bright, poppy, almost danceable, technicolor kind of futuristic thing that was meant to be kind of a reaction to the dark grandeur of the Black Parade. And I think people were kind of a little taken aback. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the problem with a lot of the sort of circa 2004, 2006 emo, Molgoth rock bands that were breaking at the time is that they were marketed like boy bands, like pop groups. They were marketed because they were really cute. They had really young fan bases. And I think what each of those bands, and specifically Mike Hem, Pank of the Disco, Fall Out Boy, proved with their sophomore albums was that they were not super interested in that. And they weren't super interested in staying in sort of the same genre and the same scene that they were a part of, that they'd grown out of. And they were very quick to move on. I mean, like making a rock opera following up after you have this like like you had sort of described as a smells like teen spirit sort of like anthemic disenfranchised youth album to kind of pivot so quickly to having Liza Minnelli on your next big album which is fantastic which is the one that I like really loved immediately from Black Parade but also like Pank the Disco making a rubber soul inspired thing <laughs> and <laughs> we don't we don't speak of them <laughs> and I mean Fall Out Boy kind of moving more into arena rock as they pushed on but yeah they were all very quick to to experiment in a way that i don't think people thought that they would yeah and i think fallout boy is the template there that they went away for a long time they came back they had new music and it was a huge success as a comeback so we'll see what happens here i really hope that my chem have a new album and aren't just doing the reunion tour although it'd be nice to just see them and it would be nice if not only their old fans get to see them again but people reassess them but we're actually out of time went fast this has been today's rolling stone music now i'm brian hyatt i was in the studio with hispanos and andy green we're talking reunions and we'll be back next week here on sirius xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime we are a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.